You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This is uh, Father James Scholl, and I'd like to continue with the reading of chapter 9 of uh, The Limits of Political Philosophy on Virtue and Vice. And we have been going through the structure of Aristotle's ethics, which is the primary text for understanding the basic distinction of virtue and vice and what they mean. The next section is called The um, Proximate Norm of Human Action. Aristotle examines those areas within or about each human being um, over which he has some control or self-guidance. Aristotle was very quick to recognize that if we are to call this an ethical or political science, we must be aware that the subject matter of a science decides the degree of certainty we can expect from it. Aristotle was willing to speak of an ethical or political science, provided we realize that that the subject matter of this science was itself intrinsically variable because of the human understanding and choice. The ethical and political sciences were engaged in putting actions and relationships following from them into reality. Until an action is actually performed, the plans for it can be otherwise, uh, can proceed in some other way. Until actually done, no action need exist at all. Then, once done, the action is eternal unchangeable. No single human action can be identical with another because each action proceeds from different persons in different times and places and uh, circumstances. But this particularity and uniqueness of each existing action does not mean that these actions were either subjective or defective in their own order as compared with speculative sciences, whose objects cannot be otherwise. Variability is of the essence of ethical and political things. It is due to the very nature of human choice and the variety of circumstances that surround every human deed or action. That's part of it. This variability is itself is a good thing and not evil that we have different choices. Aristotle did not maintain that the subjective judgment of our activities justified them. He proposed rather that in our every action what we should do is what the good man uh, would do in the same circumstances. 
This norm was the proximate criterion of the goodness of our own actions. The import of Aristotle's position should not be missed. Aristotle was saying we should each be the philosopher king in each of our everyday actions. Aristotle knew that most of us would uh, not reach this exalted position, but he wanted to insist that there was an objective good principle for us in each human action or deed that we performed. Whatever our circumstances, whether we ourselves could find it or not, whether we ourselves admitted it was there or not, and whether or not we did um, the act or not. This criterion of what the good man would do in any particular circumstance was not a substitute for our own intelligence. Aristotle was trying to uh, promote and not denigrate uh, worthy actions. If on every occasion in which we wanted to do something, we had to rush out to find out what a good man advised us or um, uh, automatic and automatically do that, we would be failing uh, the ethical duty given to each of us to act ourselves. The action was to be our action. We were to realize that um, there was that there was possible to us an actual good that we ought to do in these particular times and circumstances, even if we did not, in fact, do it. This is why Aristotle told us to deliberate before acting. When Aristotle said that we should do uh, what the good man would do, he means that we could find in every uh, possible action a right thing to do. We should recognize and act on this norm because it was the right thing to do at the right time, place, and circumstance. But if we did not see it was the right thing to do, even though it was, in fact, what the good man would do and was, in fact, uh, the right thing to do, we should not subjectively do the right thing until we did see it was right. Moreover, if we did the wrong thing, thinking it was right, the disordered consequences of the wrong act would still have their effects in the world. The next section is called The Four Moral Virtues. Aristotle, in books two to five of the Ethics, wanted to distinguish the different virtues and opposing vices. A human being, in his uniqueness, included his capacity to rule himself in those areas of his being over which he had some control. We were to do acts of virtue virtuously. This particular but well-chosen phrase means that we were to rule ourselves not because of uh, uh, custom, uh, law, or force, but because we put them into effect 
in the right way at the right time and the right circumstances. We did this because we knew this was the right way to act. Aristotle held that there was a different virtue for every area over which we had some possibility of practical control. Classical tradition distinguished the major and the minor virtues. The major virtues, sometimes called the moral or cardinal virtues, are four. Bravery, temperance, justice, and prudence. The minor virtues were control of our anger, of our wealth, of our speech, of our manners, and, and, and our wit in interacting with other, with, with other people. A virtue was found for every area uh, in us over which we did have some uh, control. We need to form ourselves so that we could rule ourselves for our highest end. This self-rule required deliberation, decision, effort, and practice. Self-rule was often uh, recognized to be the most difficult area of control that most people would ever uh, encounter. The virtues were themselves needed to enable us to reach our end. Each virtue had two opposite vices. The object in us over which we ought to have some control for the virtue of bravery, uh, for instance, was our fears and pain. So that was our the subject matter of this. We could be cowardly or rash, but what we could and ought to do was to rule our fears or our, pa our pains so that they did not rule us or deflect us from our proper duties and goals. This rule of self would be more difficult in some, uh, some people than in others, but everyone had some problem, some problem and needed to gain control over his own particular fears and pains. In the light of their uh, peculiar strength in him, each person was to judge the degree of effort needed to guide himself in the face of their uh, presence to accomplish what ought to be done or advised in life. Fears and pains, while having their own functions in keeping human beings safe and well, still needed to, to be subsumed as, as far as possible under self-rule. This self-rule did not deny that some, especially dire fears or pains, made it self-rule almost diff most difficult or impossible. But when these um, extreme um, passions or circumstances happened, it was recognized that the person was no longer a true moral agent. Temperance or moderation dealt with the 
pleasant, the pleasures, um, in particular, the enjoyment of food and sex. Aristotle recognized that pleasures of hearing and smelling and um, touch uh, existed, but that for the most part, um, these did not uh, cause much aberration. For Aristotle, pleasure was uh, pleasures were not in themselves bad or evil. They were good and necessary elements given to human nature. However, they could be and often were abused, uh, and they presented most people with some sort of difficulty in ruling, in ruling themselves. These pleasures could be ruled in us more or less if we chose to rule ourselves. We were to rule them according to our end, to place them in the service of our happiness so that we could be free to choose what we ought to do in all of the variable circumstances of our lives. Temperance is our rule, is the rule of ourselves over our pleasures at the right time, the right place, and the right circumstances. Justice is discussed in Book 5 of the Ethics. It was the first virtue that did not look solely within ourselves for its primary object. Justice had to do with our voluntary or necessary relations to others. Aristotle began his treatment of justice by speaking of what he called general as opposed to particular justice. General justice, or what was sometimes called legal justice, simply meant that the act of any virtue, say temperance or bravery, could also require uh, and include an act of justice. For example, a father who had a difficult time controlling his fears could still be obliged in justice to save his child in danger of attack or death from fire or assailants. He would have to overcome his fears and perform an act of justice because of his relation to his child. This act would be one and the same act, not two acts, but there would be in it both an act of bravery and an act of justice, one of conforming, of overcoming his fears, and one of fulfilling his obligation to his child. Special justice, in contrast to general justice, was divided into commutative and distributive justice. Justice was the virtue that most caused us to enter into public and political arrangements, uh, most caused us to get out of ourselves. Unlike temperance and bravery, whose objects were within us from nature, justice was outside of us, existing in our standing towards or in our relationships with others. Commutative and distributive justice were based on the famous uh, definition of justice, uh, that is, a render to each what is due. Some relationships 
arose between individuals, persons, because of their exchanges or promises. Others arose as a result of fault or crime. These issues were dealt with under the uh, heading of commutative or rectificatory justice. Thus, if we, if we borrowed $100 from someone, we owed the $100 to him. The rightness or unbalance uh, was uh, restored or rectified uh, when the uh, money was paid back according uh, to the terms of the agreement. Disputes about such individual arrangements uh, were the occasions uh, of the of that part of law which addressed civil or criminal disputes. Human progress required that we try to produce new things or arrangements with others, but we should agree on what we were doing. That is that it be fair, decent, and carried out according to our promises. Distributive justice referred to the way goods of the polity were acquired uh, from or returned to each member according to the principle of fairness. This form of justice uh, did not deal with each member uh, in exactly the same way but in proportion to his respective contribution to the common good or common burden. What exactly was due to each must be worked out by experience and reason. Justice could be violated if those who contributed more did not receive more, whether of monies, services, or even honors. Such things were due, but unlike the more exact sums of exchange, often could not be exactly mathematically calculated. Aristotle also spoke of, the, of a natural justice because he recognized that this virtue would exist even without a polity. Nor did the judgment of the polity by itself guaranteed justice if there were not also an objective rightness in our actions. As we will see in chapter 12 in the last discussion, Aristotle devoted only one chapter to justice uh, in the ethics, but he devoted two chapters to friendship. This seems to imply that justice has, has very severe limits in itself, however necessary it is for peace and fairness. The intellectual virtue among the moral or cardinal virtues is called prudence or moral wisdom, or sometimes practical, uh, not theoretical wisdom. This virtue is treated primarily in Book 6 of the Ethics. Prudence is the chief moral virtue and the, is involved in every other virtue. Why is this? 
Without prudence, we could be neither just nor temperate nor brave. The object of prudence uh, involves our practical intellect. That is, it involves our mind uh, when it is considering what is to be done in this or that situation. If we are to be just or brave, we must not only do brave and just acts, but we must, but these actions must be ours. What makes this or that act to be an action of a given person is the intelligence he puts into the act or uh, deed. All of the elements that go in to make up any act, elements of time, circumstance, mode of doing, uh, what the act is, are part of the um, prudential act of the practical intellect. Prudence is the virtue whereby we habitually judge rightly of our actions, uh, what they are and uh, what they are not. Prudence remains within us as our virtue, but the action as it flows out of us and uh, bears our stamp is seen as what is intended to be only if we uh, can see the intelligence that the author of the act put into it. Since every act that proceeds from a human being to be his must bear his personal stamp, this act will have uh, to pass through his intelligence as he decides what is to be done, how and what circumstances and um, conditions. Prudence, the intellectual of the moral virtues, is the most important and necessary of the moral virtues. The next section is control of wealth, anger, speech, and um, manners. Aristotle in Book 4 of the Ethics treated several other moral virtues uh, that likewise had objects more or less subject to our um, guidance. The first of these was liberality, which referred to the way we stood with regard to our money or our possessions. Our, our possessions were good. They, too, were to be used at the right time, in the right place, in the right circumstances. Possessions were not to rule us, but we were to rule them. Also, one's character was revealed by how he stood uh, to what was his, uh, but outside of himself, namely his possessions uh, or wealth. So, his, so how he did that revealed him. Aristotle recognized in a particular, particularly sane understanding of human nature that we normally needed a certain amount of material goods uh, to be virtuous, although he also recognized that poor men could be liberal um, and could show mastery over themselves in the use of meager goods for others 
uh, for people uh, for proper purposes. For the rich, Aristotle had a special virtue called munificence or uh, magnificence. The magnificent rich man could use his goods for some worthy or noble purpose to aid the polity, to foster beauty, to promote truth in a way that revealed his soul and his, un and his understanding of the highest things. Aristotle likewise saw that we all are given the capacity uh, to be angry. Some things should anger us. Anger uh, was a good and proper response to certain kinds of disorders or crimes. No doubt we could be too angry or too little angry. To rule our capacity for anger, we needed to judge and control ourselves. The rule of ourselves over um, ourselves included our control of our anger. Anger rightly ordered, uh, mirrored the order of virtue. So if the order of our anger uh, mirrors the order of our virtue, what we get angry about. Anger, anger often uh, displayed the peculiar character of the person uh, by revealing uh, what was his thought uh, to be good or what he thought to be good or evil. Other areas of self-rule uh, remained. We could rule our speech uh, so that we told the truth. We needed to uh, uh, use humor uh, and wit properly so that they did not injure others, but we ought to not to be so uh, sober that we failed to see the delight in something. Certain social graces were needed, politeness and uh, propriety in dealing with others are most fitting. The whole scope of moral activity over which we had some control was the subject matter of the virtues. In separating the different kinds of uh, actions or passions over which we could have some control, we demonstrated the differing kinds of virtue, different kinds of virtue and vice possible to human beings. The good man possessed the virtues in their proper proportions in relation to the nature of his own capacities. Each person had differing degrees of difficulty in each of these areas, so that some variety is found in what appears um, to be the right order. But a right objective order existed. To possess the virtues and to act according to them was to fulfill human potentiality, to be happy according to the proportion and the possibilities given to a human being. The next one is the magnanimous man and pleasure. Aristotle called the 
person who possessed all of the virtues, uh, moral and intellectual, uh, in proper proportion, the magnanimous uh, man, uh, one who was wise. The magnanimous man seems a, at first sight uh, to be a rather proud man, for he was to acknowledge his own virtues. Some have see, seen this Greek ideal to be in conflict with later Christian notions of humility. Certainly there is some need uh, to, uh, for resolution here. The magnanimous man was, in Aristotle's sense, a thoroughly honest man. In acknowledging his virtues, he was not to boast or to exalt himself. Rather, he possessed an objective awareness of what was the possession of a good person. The old Christian saying that humility is truth seems pertinent here. Um, if we should understand the good side of Aristotle's point about the magnanimous man. The magnanimous man is perceived by Aristotle to have a sober um, loftiness uh, by which he looks upon himself as objectively, uh, accurately, and accurately as possible. Aristotle's treatment of this magnanimous man does bring up the question of what is the highest form of life for man in this life. The possession of all the virtues, practical and theoretical, in the high and exalted form that Aristotle provides for them still can cause us to wonder whether this human fullness is enough for man. Perhaps at no other point in all of classical literature does the question of whether man is made for the virtues alone um, come up so poignantly as in Aristotle's treatment of the best, the magnanimous man. After Aristotle had concluded his discussion of the virtues, and the, of the reasons why we could err. He followed with two chapters on friendship. This will be the subject of chapter 12, but it is well to stress that the whole discussion of moral life led to the discussion of the highest things and the possibility of perfection in human life. Again, the very condition of moral living left uh, imperfectly answered questions that arose within ordinary human and political life. Aristotle saw that a further discussion of pleasure needed to be included uh, properly to locate pleasure within the context of the whole of human life. Each activity uh, possible to man had its own pleasure, which was not something independent of the uh, of the activity itself. Pleasures varied according to the activity 
in which uh, it, uh, it existed. Pleasure was secondary to the activity, so that if the activity was good, the corresponding pleasure was good. Whereas if the activity was bad, the pleasure was bad, not because of itself, but because of the end for which it was employed. Pleasure was something good in itself and needed to be further, needed no further apology. Yet it could be separated and looked on independently of the activity in which it existed. Anyone could make this separation, uh, and most did at many points in their lives, as Samuel Johnson um, uh, pointed out in the in reading at the beginning of this chapter. When pleasure as such becomes itself an end of our action, then pleasure and not the end of the act in which the pleasure occurs became the operative definition of happiness for the person. The distinction between pleasure and the activity in which it occurs made it possible to choose pleasure over the end of the action it accompanied. The discussion of pleasure defended its proper place, which was uh, a noble one within practical life, without denying that pleasure could um, deflect man from his highest good. Next question section is called Three Kinds of Happiness, Two Kinds of Happiness. Aristotle completed his discussion of the virtues of the ethics by returning in Book 10 of the Ethics to his discussion of happiness. Aristotle held that two kinds of happiness could be distinguished. One was a practical happiness, the activity of all of the practical virtues, uh, the major and minor virtues, and the uh, second was the speculative happiness or the activity of the intellect in knowing the truth of things. The practical or moral virtues uh, enabled us to use our speculative powers for their own sakes. This use meant that the highest life was not that of the politician or the businessman, but that of the philosopher whose task was to know the order of things, to know the truth insofar as it was given to human intelligence to know. The theoretic virtues, for their part, made it possible for the practical virtues to be properly guided. If we did not know what were or what uh, what we were or what the world was, we could not act properly uh, in it for our own uh, highest end. Though still most difficult, it was much easier to uh, acquire the moral virtues um, than the speculative ones. But Aristotle um, admonished us not to listen to those who would have us look only to the 
political and moral virtues, though the speculative virtues were more difficult to acquire and less certain when they were uh, when we tried to study them. Nevertheless, they were more worthy in themselves. Human life needed to strive for something beyond itself because that was the very nature or purpose of the intellect. At the end of the discussion on happiness in Book 10, Aristotle began more formally to consider politics. He began his treatment not with the um, naturalness of, of politics, which he had touched on in books one and six of the ethics, and to which he would return in the politics, uh, but with the failure of the family to um, correct or uh, implant uh, virtue in its youth. Aristotle had insisted that man is by nature a social and political animal. He would not be what he was uh, by nature but without establishing and living in an ordered polity uh, wherein all his uh, virtues, especially those uh, related to justice, uh, could be properly activated. Still, politics began most obviously with a, a need to, uh, for coercion or force to prevent the worst evils from happening. Aristotle's politics parallels his ethics. Politics reflects the kind of regimes formed by men with differing definitions of happiness and virtue. Some men chose wealth, power, honor, wisdom, or some other possible end for their act activities. The kinds of life were uh, manifested in the regimes formed by those of similar purpose or definitions of happiness. In ending his uh, politics with a discussion of leisure. Moreover, Aristotle indicated that the purpose of the political life was not exclusively itself, however worthy it was. The end of political life was the contemplative life and the ordering of practical life in its purposes. That leisure was the end of both ethics and politics meant that man's speculative powers were to be activated uh, to know the truth of things, whereas his active or moral powers were to be used to enable him to live in human life, uh, live a human life in accordance with the truth of things. Civic duty and the arts were designed to place in the city a, a reflection of the highest things known to reason. Aristotle, though he realized not every regime uh, could maintain this uh, purpose, wanted a, a harmony between politics and philosophy that would enable both 
to exist together without the necessity of our destroying or hindering the of one destroying or hindering the other. His ethical and political analysis of the way men act for the most part uh, recognized that uh, few men or regimes ever attained the most exalted levels. Aristotle was content to achieve things gradually. He was aware of the um, difficulty in changing human habits and laws. He could recommend the second or the third best regime, or even a better regime among those admittedly bad, because he knew human nature well enough to settle for lesser good in place of the greater evil. At the same time, Aristotle's philosophy, philosophical analysis, remained in place. The right order of thoughts and action was spelled out on the basis of a kind of nature given to men in the cosmos. Man was the highest of the things containing matter, but the lowest of the spiritual things. It was good that man was what he was, uh, the microcosmos, the being in whom every level of reality, from mineral to spirit, was contained. Aristotle reflectively took us through the steps by which we could understand our uh, peculiar humanness and its limitations. Virtue was for itself, and yet it seemed incomplete. The whole life of virtue was ordered to know the truth of reality, and um, an achievement that even Aristotle thought was difficult and fleeting. In the tract on virtue, in uh, something um, remained unanswered precisely because the human condition of uh, virtue and vice were uh, perceptibly understood in what they actually were. Uh, uh, curiously, both complete and incomplete. This is why the tractates on virtue and vice need to be seen in the light of the tractates on contemplation, uh, on, uh, on contemplation in books 10, uh, the final and most extraordinary book of the ethics, the end of the chapter. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.